and welcome to Ethics in Marketing podcast. My name is Mikhail Mizgin, and today I joined by three Skypers. We talk about boundaries of persuasion in digital marketing, specifically in the areas of social proof, personalization, advertising, and nudging. We also discuss the current state of regulations on all these topics. What is the legal bottom line that marketers have to keep in mind, and more. Hi, Dries. Hi, Mikhail. Nice to be here. Maybe you could start by introducing yourself and tell us what you do. Yeah, and first of all, um, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. Really interesting to uh, see what you're doing and how you reach out to the marketing community. Um, yeah, so my name is Dries Kuipers. I work for the Authority for Consumers and Markets in the Netherlands which is a public authority that enforces, among others, consumer protection law. I'm involved in the division that does so, and I coordinate the work on the digital economy. And of course, one of our priorities within the digital economy is what we call online persuasion or what we could be called dark patterns or deceptive design or whatever name we give to it. So your organization put together a guide for businesses and consumers, which has a subtitle, Boundaries of Online Persuasion, a topic of big interest to me. Uh, I mean, search for boundaries, because there are so many gray areas in what we do in marketing. At what point does online persuasion turn into deception? I like this question a lot, because I think that we as marketers have to ask this question ourselves a lot. So could you please describe this work, the guidelines, and what you tried to achieve, and then maybe we can discuss it in some details. Yeah, sure. I think it's a little over three years ago that we really started looking at online marketing techniques in relation to European consumer protection law. And there was a a debate around the globe starting actually um, on what the limits should be to the use of those techniques. I think some people started seeing real harms and we posed ourselves the question, what's our role in this? What should we do? And clearly, to many people, it wasn't either clear that the law was applicable to these situations or they didn't know how it was applicable. So one of the thoughts we had is that definitely as an enforcement agency, we will start doing enforcement cases to make clear where the boundaries are. But with the level of insecurity that there was, we thought it was also a good idea to uh, really write down on the most prominent techniques at that time where we think we need to draw the line based on the current legislation. So I'm not saying that's an ethical line. Probably the ethical boundaries in some cases should even be higher. But this is the bottom legal line based on European law. So we started drafting this document, uh, which was also inputted by uh, some experts. And we, first of all, identified the different techniques, which as you can see in the document is 11 different ones. We described how they work very generically, where we think we should draw the line from a legal perspective. And we try to provide some examples of what you can do, but mostly also of what you can't do with the idea that really we need to educate the business community and raise awareness of all these different issues and risks that there are to consumers. And of course, I think I have to add that this only applies to the commercial use of dark patterns. So we're not talking about, which is also commercial, so I have to be careful here, but it doesn't apply to dark patterns that are being uh, deployed in the realm of the GDPR, nor more broadly, maybe in, I don't know, we've seen examples in the American elections, for example, where dark patterns were being used to uh, raise funds. Uh, so we're not speaking about that area, but really about e-commerce and trying to sell things online. So that's what we that's what we set out to do. And of course, things have been moving on uh, the last two years. A lot has happened. So we're actually at the moment in the process of revising the guidelines and adding new topics. So maybe we could discuss some of the topics that you covered in the guidelines. And I would like to start with social proof, as it seems to me there is a big gray area here. So how do you approach this concept at your organization in the guidance? Yeah, so maybe I think there's a gray, probably a gray area in all the techniques. So I think maybe just going back to your former question, we don't always draw the line and giving clarity in every single case that there is. So I think you always need to assess every single marketing practice by itself on the merits and the circumstances. <clears throat> so we try to give some generic 
guidance which would help make that first step. And of course, this also goes for social proof. So social proof is probably a quite broad topic which involves various things. Within the guidelines, we really try to narrow it down to the use of consumer engagement and more specifically, either fake consumer engagement or manipulated consumer engagement. I think I, I sort of try and explain the difference by you know, fake consumer engagement is, for example, a fake review, which has been completely concocted and has nothing to do with a real consumer writing something down. The misleading or manipulated consumer engagement would be, for example, a consumer writing a negative review. But for some reason, and it's usually a very obvious reason, the business receiving that review will either delay posting it because they say that they need to moderate it very often because they don't like the negative content, or they either contact the consumer and say, hey, would you be prepared to change your negative review? Because, you know, if we send you a new product, you may be more happy than you were before. So that or that they actually just tweak the review by themselves in a moderation process without even letting the consumer know. So there's, there's all sorts of ways that as a business, you could change those reviews. Now, fake engagement is not only about reviews. We also see, of course, uh, likes that are very easily purchasable online or fake followers. We see all kinds of different fake engagement. And so I think there is a pretty easy line to draw in terms of fake engagement, right? It's either fake or it's not. I think the gray area that you talk about is probably more in what I just described as the manipulated or misleading engagement where the business engages with the consumer or with the review to change maybe certain aspects. And there indeed it can become a little gray because of course, you know, a business needs to be able to check for inappropriate language. Of course, they may hold back certain reviews for moderation, but it it needs to be done fairly. So you can't hold back negative reviews where you're not holding back positive ones, for example. But this, of course, is a more gray area also from a legal perspective in the sense that there's not so much case law out there, or maybe hardly any, that tells you that this is actually a violation of the law. But we would definitely see it that way. One of the problems I want to discuss is when a business tries to solicit reviews from their customers and in a different way offers some kind of a reward to their customers that makes them want to write a review. And uh, the guidance says that it has to be indicated, stated clearly that this review was, you know, uh, the reviewer actually got paid. So if a company stimulates their customer base to write a review in exchange for a gift card, is this fair? Should it be disclosed? And if yes, in what words? One example comes to mind is uh, Amazon Vine program. When you go to Amazon and you see Vine voice, you don't really know what, what it means. You know, we as marketers, we know, but consumers probably don't. Maybe some do, but is this a clear disclosure or is it not? And is there any advice into in what terms should this be disclosed? I think you're posing two different questions. The first one is incentivizing reviews. Is that fair? And the second one is if you have to disclose, which we think you should, on the incentivized review, how do you do that? And how do you make clear to the consumer that it is incentivized? I think I'll start with the first one. So whether it's fair or not is, from a legal perspective, I think not an easy to answer question. However, I think from a, let's say, psychological perspective, it, I would be really surprised if the fact that a consumer receives a reward, whatever it is, whether it's a payment, a product or, or a subscription, would not influence the review. Now, if we go back to the original idea of customer reviews, it is that you, as a customer, as a consumer, you provide information on a product or service that is actually trustworthy and useful for another consumer so that he or she can base her decision, among others, on this information. Now, the more you incentivize consumers to write reviews, I think the further away you would move from receiving as another consumer this objective, trustworthy information. So I would say 
that it does influence customer reviews and that you shouldn't want to incentivize at all. And I think this is confirmed by the market because many big platforms have moved away from incentivizing or using incentivized reviews. I think if you if you do, the bottom line is that you should indeed disclose. And then the question is, how do you disclose? And while this is a really interesting question, which, which to my mind goes far beyond just how to disclose on incentivized reviews, but also, for example, on personalization or on paid ranking, there is many topics uh, nowadays that, that require disclosure by the law, by the way, because in Europe, uh, many of these things are now being required by the law. And here we tap into a topic that we call the effectiveness of disclosures. And, you know, the law doesn't really describe you what the text of your disclosures should look like or what the design of your disclosure should look like. And of course, we know that, you know, you can make your, you can virtually render a disclosure useless by designing it away or by making it very complicated in terms of language. And if you do the both together, there's probably no consumer who will ever understand your disclosure. What we now require is what we call effective disclosures. And this means the disclosure should really convey the message in a simple and clear manner at the right time to the consumer in a way that he or she can actually absorb the information and use that to make a decision then you're probably going to ask, okay, so what does, a, what does a disclosure look like? And this, I think, is, again, a matter that you need to take from really case-by-case basis. And this is also where we've said that we want businesses to start testing the effectiveness of their disclosures. So they have a lot of information about their customers. They have all the testing equipment available, right? Because they're doing A-B testing on to optimize conversion all the time. So... It would be a small step to move from this A-B testing to comprehension testing and to show actually to the outside world, but maybe also to the regulator, that the way they disclose is actually comprehensible for consumers. So we've done some studies ourselves to show how effective certain disclosures are. And I have to say that the results were pretty disappointing. I can elaborate on that if you want to. But we're also now engaging with some Dutch businesses as we speak to see how effective their disclosures are and what ways they can be improved. So this is to illustrate the importance and to illustrate what you can do to improve the effectiveness of disclosures. So this, this was probably a very long answer to what maybe seemed a fairly simple question, but I, I think it's a very relevant aspect of, of online marketing since there are so many disclosure requirements in the law at the moment. And what do you find so disappointing that you mentioned? Well, the thing is, so one of the studies that we did, for example, was on paid ranking. And we had a very unique opportunity where we could test the disclosures by a business. And I, I'm not in a position to name the company, which engages in paid ranking. So in search results that are being ranked higher because the company who is in the result pays for it. And they introduced a disclosure in their app or on their website. I always forget which one it was. And they did not on the other sales channel. So it was either the app or the website that they did and the other one they didn't. And we found out that it was a pretty common way of disclosing paid rankings. So you had the search results in one column and then there was another column, which I think had some additional information. And then there was a column with the disclosure, which was in a pretty small font, gray, which I think is pretty standard nowadays in the market, commonly used. And the result was that absolutely no consumer identified the disclosure nor understood what it meant. And we did some follow-up research and it, it, it was both the design of the disclosure that rendered it ineffective, but also the, the words being used. So uh, I think it was the word sponsored that was being used. And in the Netherlands, sponsoring usually has a very positive connotation which people relate to sports, where a sports team is being sponsored by a company. So the word sponsored for most consumers rang absolutely no bell that this might have been paid for and therefore be higher in the ranking. So there's a couple of more studies like this that we did, but I think this is um, a very good example. Do you mean we have different companies showing up as a result of our query and some of them are promoted and some of them are not and it's not clear what is actually promoted and what is not? 
Exactly. That's exactly the situation I'm talking about. And it may be even taking one step back, right? And I'm moving away from what we as an enforcement agency would think, but this is like more a personal opinion is even if you were to disclose properly, as a consumer, you don't know really what it means if you see paid results, for example, right? Because let's say you're seeing this on the first position of your search results. You have no idea where this search result would have ended up had it not been paid for. Would it be second? Would it have been fifth? Would it have been 15th? So you're not in a position to really identify the quality of that search result anymore. So I think that's that's even a more profound debate that we, we should have about paid ranking. And so this... This is a question of being able to recognize an advertising versus something organic. Exactly. And we we know that consumers assume that the results are organic. So one of the most prominent examples for me here is the evolution of Google search result page and how ads look on it. 10 years ago, ads were visually very distinguishable, but not so much today. Would it be a good demonstration of this practice? I think it, I think it would be, yeah, and and this this even further complicates it because we're also talking about ads now, which we're adding another part of the discussion to to it. But I th- I think it's definitely a good example. It actually turns out a lot harder than we thought to make good disclosures. And I think one of the things that you just mentioned that triggered a thought in me is like they were well recognizable in the past, and they're not anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, that's probably not a coincidence. Okay. So, so what we know is that uh, there's some research actually that, that tells us that one way of actually helping consumers with recognizing these disclosures is by standardizing. And then I'm standardizing, I mean, not across one platform, which would be helpful, but probably across the market. So one way out of this conundrum of how to improve disclosures is probably standardization. And and that's a process which I think we might think about starting in terms of legislation maybe, or self-regulation, but we're still, I think, pretty far away from that situation. Yeah, but uh, in a broader sense, it's the same issue as with social proof, is that if you pay for something, it has to be clear for users whether, you know, it's an ad on a search engine result page or if it's a review on your website it's a way for you to disclose whatever you do exactly yeah i definitely agree that this is not a coincidence that uh, this evolution of google uh, search result page as a marketer i've been dealing with google ads for i think almost 14 years and i've seen this evolution taking place step by step and all marketers that I know, they saw these changes taking place and it was very clear why this is happening and where this is going. So going back to social proof, one of the examples that you give in the guidance is, and this is a fake review example, let's say when a family member leaves a review and this family member didn't buy the product but leaves a review to support the business, this is not permitted. And that makes sense, right? So this person didn't buy the product, so it's not a fair review. But I wanted to ask you about a case where a family member or someone close to business does buy a product, does leave a review, it's very likely going to be a very positive review. And technically speaking, it's a fair review, but at the same time, the bias of this person is very clear that this person does that to boost positive reviews for that business. So what can you say to me about this situation? Well, I, I, first of all, I think there's a couple of things here to, to unpack as well. Um, I think the first one is probably, you know, to what extent should one be able to provide reviews on products or services that one hasn't used or, or didn't buy? And I think that's a pretty debatable topic. I know there is some big platforms that allow for these kind of reviews and others that don't. I think there is pros and cons going back and forth uh, that all make sense. So I'm not sure if I have a full and final position on on this, but I think that certainly what you always need to bear in mind is, you know, to what extent am I providing the other customers with trustworthy, objective reviews that have not been 
mingled with, right? That That's really, I would say, the bottom line question that you need to ask yourself as a business, whatever you do with your reviews. And this also goes for the situation in which you allow reviews of people that haven't used the products. Now, it's always, I would say, very hard to determine whether someone who posts a review has actually used a product, right? I mean, you can sort of build in checks, has so that, for example, that you need to show that you, you actually bought the product, but then still you don't know if that was the person who really used it. So I think this will never be a system that is fully safe or secure. And maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be. I'm, I'm not sure to what extent the number of reviews are very extensive that are posted by people who know the business owner. I find it hard to assess at this moment in time the extent of the potential problem here, but unless you you have a clear example in which situation this may be a real problem. I still have my conclusion out there. No, I don't have an example. I just wanted to throw out the situation out there and see what thoughts come out. But generally speaking, I don't think that this is necessarily a negative situation because the reality is often that businesses, especially new ones, they live and die by reviews. And if you take Amazon as an example, and a a small business is starting, and it's not an uncommon situation that a competitor could leave negative review. And if it's just first few reviews are negative, then you're done as a business. No, absolutely. So that's... Yeah, yeah. I I think you're tapping into two issues here that we probably should address, but I don't think are entirely in the realm of consumer protection. The the one you mentioned, of course, I, I mean, we're very aware of the fact that businesses can really destroy competitors by, for example, on a platform like Amazon posting negative reviews where sometimes these are being picked up by the Amazon system and, you know, this trader is banned. Now, this is a a situation that we fully recognize, but falls outside the realm of consumer protection. So we really go into the realm of potential competition or fair competition here. But also, I think in the realm of, you know, to what degree does Amazon make sure that its systems are up to date and that they cannot be used for these kind of tricks. So this this is really not something that that we should uh, address as as an agency, but something that first of all amazon has to make sure can't happen now i appreciate that this may be hard in some ways but that's absolutely within their responsibility i would say the other one i think that you mentioned is that we know that starting businesses of course have a hard time building the sort of body of reviews that you might need on a platform to be visible and and to start selling yes i do recognize that but at the same time that would never ever justify you using fake reviews or likes So, you know, there's just a clear legal bottom line that you shouldn't cross. And there needs to be a way, and this is probably maybe also something for platforms to think about, because, you know, as a platform, you want to incentivize new sellers on the platform, right? You want your stock to be broadened. You want to innovate what's being sold on your platform. So I would say that this is also definitely something for the platform to think about how to organize things. But I can simply say from the legal and enforcement perspective, I understand you as a a starting business, I understand your problem i understand your e-commerce need but we can ever allow you to use fake engagement to do so because it's, it's absolutely not helping consumers mm-hmm. i'm not arguing for fake reviews of course but this borderline situation where people close to the new business try to support it by actually buying the product and leaving a positive review no, I, get I, th- I think that's happening, of course, all the time. And if it's small scale, I don't think, you know, and if it's enough to start a business, it, it might be helpful and we're probably not going to make a big problem out of it. But it's really this, you know, more structural buying of fake likes or manipulating likes or, or reviews that you get, which is really problematic because it really puts uh, consumers on the wrong footing. So... Maybe we could move to personalization and issues around that. So we all know what personalization is, and we have a lot of tools to make personalization happen in marketing communication. So what problems does it present from your point of view? Yeah, and I think before we start talking about personalization, we need to make clear whether we're speaking about personalization of prices or more personalization of marketing techniques, because these are two well, slightly separate topics to my mind. I'm I'm not sure if you have Mm -hmm. a preference which one you want to discuss first. Marketing, communication, not prices. Yeah, so I think personalization of marketing communication can certainly become 
problematic. And to my mind, it does so when businesses start using information that they have about a consumer or about a consumer's weaknesses or vulnerabilities. And so let's, for example, assume that you have gathered a lot of information about your customers and you know that a certain group is prone to addiction and you sell a product which is in some way or form slightly addictive and you start singling out that group to market to. I would say that that's clearly a violation of European law and that you're actually misleading consumers and even using their vulnerability to sell your products. Well, that would certainly not be allowed. Now, this is a very clear cut and straightforward example, but it's also, for example, thinkable that you have an AI running your digital advertising and that you're not even aware of the fact that this AI is picking up on certain biases or vulnerabilities that it uses to select who you start advertising to or the way that you start advertising to certain groups. And also here, I I would say you still run the risk of abusing those weaknesses or vulnerabilities when you're not really paying attention to what the AI is doing. And I, I think this is pretty hard the way many businesses nowadays govern their AIs. I I think many businesses simply don't know enough to be able to say that their AI is actually not doing this. So I think we need to make big, big steps here in terms of governance and uh, logging and testing AIs to know that they're actually not running those risks. So that comes down to how marketing team inside the company use the tools that are available on the market. Yeah. Definitely, there are a lot of AI tools available for marketers and not many of those AI tools that are available disclose the way they work. And there are not so many AI tools that actually tell you about what kind of ethical standards they have, what actions they take to prevent undesirable consequences because there are definitely many examples of what AI tools can produce in terms of undesirable consequences. AI ethics is a big field. And a very young field. Very young, but it develops so quickly. So I think there will be more upcoming regulations when it comes to AI. Yeah, definitely. But I think it's important to realize for, for marketeers out there that currently the results of what an AI produces are actually to be checked by consumer law. So you, your AI cannot produce results that are counter European consumer protection law because you violate the law. And the fact that person or the business that sells you the AI doesn't disclose its workings, doesn't take away your liability as the seller because you're using the AI and the results that you use in your marketing are your activities. So you will still be liable for those results under consumer protection law, which I think is a very important realization to have. Yeah, so basically marketing teams are responsible for tools that they use. Exactly. And they're responsible for the results that those tools produce towards consumers. Yes. Yeah. Let's talk about nudging. Could you please remind us what it means? And then maybe also explain what is hyper nudging, a term that is used in the guidelines. And what are the associated problems with both of these terms? Yeah, so I mean, there's, I don't think there's any common definition of all these terms out there. So um, you'll have to go uh, with mine at the moment. But I, I think nudging is probably not so much different from what we understand by deceptive design or, or design that influences people. So persuasive design. Actually, it, what it is, is you're using psychological insights about how the human brain works how we use certain defaults in our brain, which we call heuristics or biases. You can use those to the advantage of the consumer, which I think would then be a positive nudge, or you can use those against the interests of a consumer if we're talking about the commercial setting, and then we're probably speaking about a dark pattern. So I think the whole idea that you know we know more about the human brain and that we're able to exploit or abuse those insights and those biases is the whole idea underlying many of these undesirable e-commerce practices, right? And this is also the idea underlying our guidelines. And I think hyper-nudging, but you you might have to help me here, is also the situation where we probably are so well aware of what the consumer, a single consumer knows or does, right? So, So I think we're tapping into this 
personalization again here yeah. is that we actually use all the information to influence this consumer. And so as we just discussed, I think that can be really problematic if you're using the wrong input or if your system that does, you know, makes those decisions in an automated way operates in ways that you're not aware about and produces undesirable results. I think another thing I want to mention here is that so what we've argued in the guidelines and it's not so explicitly there, but but it is it has been in our messaging around the guidelines lines is as soon as you start personalizing, you're actually zooming, let's say you zoom into one consumer. Now, you know, and you're going to use all the information you have about that consumer to persuade or or manipulate that consumer into a certain decision. What we're saying is usually consumer protection law assesses the admissibility of a practice by what is called the standard of the average consumer. Now, the average consumer is a legal definition, and I won't bore you with the details, but it actually says or goes from the premises that a consumer is pretty well aware, educated, and alert and circumspect. Well, the reality is, of course, that consumers are not. So what we're saying is we will drop this legal fallacy when we're talking about personalization. Because if you know so much about that one customer, then your one customer becomes your average consumer. So you as a business, when when personalizing, you have to take responsibility for what you know also about the weaknesses of this consumer and you should not exploit them. So this is sort of the new debate, I think, that we should be having around personalization. And I think uh, it goes back to AI tools, that if you task an AI tool with achieving a certain goal, let's say convert a user and becoming your customer, this AI tool will personalize and personalize and nudge and nudge over and over until the goal is achieved. And that's maybe what hyper nudging is. It's a perpetual nudge done by AI tool that keeps educating itself, that keeps learning about this particular individual, their wishes, their behavior, and their habits. And it, it could get creepy. Oh, absolutely. And I I think from a legal perspective, we would say, you know, as soon as you manage to manipulate people into making purchasing decisions that they otherwise wouldn't have made, you're really in the wrong territory. So this is, I mean, you started with the the mentioning of the subtitle of the guidelines where persuasion turns into, I think, is it deception or or manipulation? Deception, Deception, yeah. So this is really the the line that you're crossing then. So you're no longer just telling someone, look at my product, it is really good and maybe you should want to buy it uh, into, you know, trying to find ways to make someone buy this product, although it may actually be counter their interests. So uh, you mentioned positive nudge, and I think that uh, marketing uses behavioral science a lot. So because you said positive nudge, do you think that behavioral science has its place in marketing? And how do you distinguish between, let's say, a business says, well, I believe that my product will benefit the consumer, but maybe the consumer doesn't agree, but the business could justify the nudge Uh, the personalization and the continuous targeting of that group of consumers or this consumer because the business claims that from their point of view, their product can benefit this consumer. And maybe they can even present some sort of argumentation why it is so-and-so, which I think it, it can be done quite good in theoretical terms. But the consumer maybe has a different opinion, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe consumer has a different opinion. Uh, it, it could get it could get complicated because people change their opinion, right? And yeah. at some point they can be reluctant to even consider product, but then they can change their mind. And there's a big gray area between these two conditions. So uh, how do you approach this problem in terms of like positive nudge, or let's say negative nudge, and it could be viewed differently from different point of views. Yeah, no, sure. Let's first of all make clear that we're talking about, from from my perspective, a theoretical situation because we haven't had businesses come to us yet 
and say, oh, right, you're investigating us uh, for deceptive design, but actually we're trying to positively nudge consumers. So please, make uh, we're trying to justify what we've done. We, we haven't had these situations yet. So that probably is a, a, is a first remark to make. I would probably say, I would only hope that we had those situations. Because I think, and that's probably what I want to put out there first and foremost, is I sometimes see the discussion around positive nudges being brought up as some kind of a diversion by the business community to take the debate away from the fact that just normal dark patterns or deceptive design has to be tackled. You know, that is what we really need and that's what we require. And if the business community wants to use nudges for good, okay, fine, but let's make sure that they're first not being used for bad, right? That That's probably where my priority would be. As But I'm clearly saying this, of course, from a regulatory consumer perspective. Now, if you start using behavioral insights or nudges to nudge consumers towards what you as a business think is good. I think we, we you get into a realm where you can have a very deep philosophical debate, right, as to what extent... Can someone else decide what's good for you? And of course, we're having we're having some of these debates right now where in policy areas or, or legislative areas, for example, around trying to incentivize consumers to buy sustainable. And I think on the one hand, we should probably have this as a policy debate first. Where do we want this? And to what extent? I think it can never go as far also here, even though you may have a product that is good for the consumer that he or she should use, that you start manipulating people into those choices as much as even they may sometimes align with social goals. I think the autonomy of the customer or the consumer is still paramount. To go back to the example of sustainability, I think if we want to green our economy, we need to find ways to make sure that consumers are starting to buy more green or more sustainable. And that probably requires some ways of nudging. So would that then allow a business to nudge people towards greener products? Maybe. However, then the opposite story is, but hang on, consumers are autonomous and should be autonomous and should make their decisions autonomously. And as soon as you start interfering with that, you're taking away that autonomy. And and is that something we want as a society? So I I think the verdict on that is still out. And I, I think some people recognize that we should probably move to more nudging in some areas. And some will question this depending on your political views, I think. But the bottom line still will be, of course, that you should not be as a business in a position where you manipulate people into buying your product, where you're thinking that it's good for them and they just don't want it. Uh, I mean, that would be a situation which would cross the line anyway, I would say, certainly under current law. Yeah, but uh, this is an interesting philosophical discussion about the good nudge. And yeah, it certainly is. And, the and agency. One that we'll, we'll be having probably for another 10 years. Probably more. Yeah. <laughs> so another area I wanted to discuss is using the word free, describing a product as free. And in B2B marketing, there is an approach commonly known as lead generation. One of the most popular tactics of generating leads is to create a downloadable piece of content and promote it. When people want to download it, they have to submit the form first. Thus, it's known as gated content. But in most cases, such content is promoted as free. So this tactic was popularized and is still practiced extensively by HubSpot. In this case, it's not a product that is offered as free, but still a transaction takes place between a business and a person that represents another business. An exchange of content for contact details. These contact details will be used uh, by sales or marketing. So is using the free word is justified in this case? Yeah, so I think that there is a pretty clear answer to that now based on European law, but it, it is indeed you know, interesting to look back and see what has happened in history. Because I remember that we were together with other European agencies, I think it was in 2013 or 14, we were looking at online games back then who were being marketed as free, who were absolutely not free in the sense that you needed to, or you certainly could, but you probably needed to conduct in-app purchases to be able to play that game. 
So that was sort of the one of the initial times that we were in touch with this discussion. And it was a very clear position from all the European authorities together that you could not market a game free in which you had to pay to play. So back then, this led to a lot of changes in, I think it was both uh, the App Store and, and Google Play Store, where these games could no longer be marketed as free. Of course, we have moved on and we've seen different developments since. And we've also had a change now recently in European law, which actually recognizes the situation, which I think was already adopted by some courts in Europe uh, and certainly also by some regulators, is that if you pay with your data for a service or product, that is actually a payment. It is not free and you cannot use the word free. So I'm, I'm not that familiar with the, uh, the example that you provide, but to me, it sounds like the business is actually providing you with a piece of content and in return, you're indeed paying with your data which is then being used. So it absolutely has monetary value to the business. So I think marketing that as free to my mind, but again, I'm not, this is not like a final regulatory verdict, which I always have to mention here. But to me, that, that absolutely sounds like the wrong use of the word free. In our earlier conversation, you mentioned that there is a lot of existing legislation that businesses and consumers aren't aware of. Why do you think this gap exists? And what are the actions your agency and other agencies, agencies take to change this situation? Yeah, so indeed, you know, the, the interesting thing is, and this is probably a reason also why it is not so familiar with uh, the marketing community, is that European consumer protection law actually, to a large degree, is made up of what we would call open norms. So there are general prohibitions, as in thou shall not mislead a consumer. I'm generating here, of course. I mean, this is both the beauty and probably the difficulty of this legislation is that the beauty of it is that is deliberately created as a reinterpretable norm. So the norm was created thinking forward and thinking that, you know, whatever happens in the future in terms of innovations and developments, we will be able to interpret the law again to make it applicable to these new developments. So that's exactly what we have done with our guidelines, right? So we've said, all right, we need to add an interpretation of the law, which really outlines how these new developments fit into the law. I think the downside there, of course, is that there is no strict prohibitions. I mean, there are some. There is a blacklist, for example, within the law that says you cannot do this, you cannot do that. But generically speaking, Many of these prohibitions, these these per se prohibitions, are not yet applicable to online marketing situations. Some are. So a lot of the application of the law needs to be done by this general prohibition, which of course requires interpretation. And I can imagine that for many marketeers, that is not something they you know were actively doing in the past. What I do think, though, is that, you know, the structure of the law is not new. This is not a surprise to anyone. And I think businesses probably, or maybe even branch organizations, should have been more active in the past. And, of course, thinking, wait, there is this consumer protection legislation. How does this apply to what we're doing? And we see, for example, that there is a pretty large awareness of the GDPR, within the online marketing community. I'm not always saying they're complying, but at least there is a lot of awareness, whereas there isn't at the same time about consumer protection law. And I think this is one of the reasons. I, th I think it's also because the GDPR was, of course, has come into force quite recently as a big European package. It was therefore, you know, widely communicated. European consumer protection law is a, I don't know, probably a kilt of different pieces of legislation that have been there for a long time and that you really need to be aware of. So I think this is probably one of the reasons why it's, it's not as well known, but absolutely applicable. And I think now I answered only one part of your question and I forgot the second. So the second part was, why does this gap exist? But I think you actually answered that part too. Yeah. And And I think we have some very liberal markets, and especially, of course, in the US, where a lot of these techniques and developments originated. I think there's, for a long time, there haven't been any legal checks. We see we see now that, you know, especially on the state level, this is changing, not maybe yet so much on a federal level, but I think the market has had a free hand for a long time to develop those techniques. And now we start of sort of realize that we, that there are some very undesirable consequences and we need to pedal back. And I 
I think definitely in Europe, this is this is being done. Of course, we now also have uh, more legislation coming up with the Digital Services Act, which has a general provision on or a general prohibition to use dark patterns. And, and the European Commission is also going to revisit all the existing consumer law to see if it's still fit for purpose in the sense that it protects consumers in the online area against dark patterns sufficiently. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if over the next few years we're going to see more changes to the law and probably also some very specific prohibitions of certain techniques. I think there is a, a general need felt in society that some of these techniques that are currently being used have to be restricted or limited or sometimes even banned. And I think that's going to happen. Of course, this will take time. You know, legislative processes are not usually not very fast. So in the time being, we will probably have to rely on interpretations given by enforcement agencies like ours. And also there I see a development where more and more agencies are willing to interpret the legislation in a stricter sense and apply it very specifically to on- online marketing techniques that are misleading. So uh, I think there's a very clear development there. I also hope, and this is something that we put out also when we published the guidelines, that first and foremost, the business community is going to take responsibility. And here I see two very diverging developments, I think. The one is that I certainly see businesses that take this very seriously and that want to do good and improve their marketing techniques and bring them in line with the law or, or make sure that they're not deceiving their clients. Yet simultaneously, I see some very worrying developments. I mean, I think we've only seen the start of personalization. I think we're also moving towards uh, new areas, new selling spaces, for example, in which AR and VR techniques are going to be used quite extensively in settings like the metaverse or a metaverse or multiple metaverses or whatever it's going to be. And there I have a real worry of, you know, the risks that we already described of being people easily being manipulated based on all the data available about them is only going to increase. So on the one hand, a little positive. On the other hand, also quite worried about future developments. And I think the last point you mentioned consumers and consumer awareness. So this is a difficult topic. I think we should never stop educating consumers, but I am not hugely optimistic about educating consumers on recognizing dark patterns for multiple reasons. I think, first of all, I mean, the whole idea of some of these techniques is that they work our biases and our heuristics. And education can only take that away partly. I mean, we we know from psychological and behavioral science that some of these techniques even work if you know that they're at play. Uh, And some people even say that they don't fall for them, but if you then start testing, they actually fall for them. So that's one difficulty. I think the other is that, you know, there will always be a gap between consumer education and the application of the technique. So the technique will be there and then consumers, to the extent that they can, start adjusting. And by the time they're adjusted, new techniques are out there. So we'll have this constant educational gap in which harms take place. Do we want that as a society? I'm not so sure if we if we should want that. The other thing also to consider is who would educate consumers? I don't see the business community do that. So it would probably be government, right? So we would spend taxpayers' money to educate consumers to try and fix the negative aspects of marketing techniques that we could also just limit or ban. So I'm not entirely sure if I would even like that approach so much being a taxpayer. And I think the final point, and that probably really relates to this last point, is we have relied too long on consumers trying to solve this issue as a market player, right? The consumer disciplining the market. This is another, I think, example of a classical definition of the consumer. And the consumer clearly isn't able to understand what's happening to a large degree. So in a sense, we're actually even gaslighting the consumer, right? We're saying you're being manipulated, but it's actually your own fault. So do something about it. While at the same time, we know from all the research that many consumers, and I'm not even speaking about vulnerable consumers, right? Because there are large groups out there that probably never will be able to fend off these dark patterns. But even the, the average consumer, to a large degree, will have limited capacity to manage the negative effects or, or manipulation that it that is thrown at it. So as much as I would have loved to have a positive image of consumers, which I do, and, and I think they can learn, but uh, we should certainly not rely on that as the sole solution of this problem problem and also not the primary solution to this problem. Yeah, and I think that's why regulation exists and why we should have enforcement. It's yeah, 
Definitely. And I, I think um, in the last two decades, we've learned that the internet in a broader sense cannot regulate itself. Indeed. And we have some large platforms recognizing that as well from trying to fight any form of regulation in the past to now actually almost crying out for some regulation, which is it's quite funny as a regulator to look at. Yeah. So if you want my listeners to take only one thing with them out of this interview, what would that be? So I think clearly that would be, you know, as a marketeer, make sure that you educate yourself to a certain degree on these ethical debates that are out there. And, and there are many places where they're being held at the moment. Make sure that you understand what the different considerations are and then try and apply that in practice. So if you are, an, and I know there are many aspects that make this difficult for a marketeer, but make sure that you try and have a debate within your own organization. If you see things go wrong or see things that are questionable to maybe even just raise the idea of testing how things actually work for consumers so that you can actually have a founded debate internally on what the effects are and whether they are desirable or not. And also make sure that you have the right expertise at hand on consumer protection or to tell you where the limits are. Because, you know, for the GDPR, as I said, many people do have that knowledge within their compliance departments, not always so for general consumer protection law. And I think additionally, you know, make sure that you organize some kind of governance within your marketing department or within your wider company to actually allow for those ethical slash legal debates. I think very often that doesn't exist. It really is a matter of conversion and decisions are almost fully based on money. And I think, you know, the ethical legal aspects in this respect have to become part of the decision-making process. And that needs to be facilitated also by management. It's probably not something you can expect from a UX designer or a data scientist or a marketeer who all look at, you know, one little phase of the whole process and they're under pressure and trying to do the best they can to optimize all those different parts. So they have a responsibility as well for their own domain, but I think there needs to be also responsibility on a higher level, which oversees the whole process and where there's actually also the power to make the decision on the money, because it will, in some cases, changing for the better will have some negative consequences on conversion. And those decisions need to be made and they cannot be made by individual marketeers or UX designers. And my bottom line is, you know, this is not a trade-off, right? And I'm now more speaking probably to CEOs and, and, and decision makers, but you cannot say, all oh, right, we'll have a little violation of the law for a little less conversion. No, I mean, the law is the bottom line, right? So you cannot have conversion for violations. We just need compliance with the law and all the conversion within the framework of the law is fine with me. And if you want to set the bar higher because you want some additional ethical standards, even better. But you know, the absolute bottom line is that you do not manipulate consumers. Thank you. Where my listeners can find you on the web? Right. So me personally, as a civil servant, I'm, I'm not too big out there. So first of all, uh, they can go to the website of the Authority for Consumers and Markets. We have a very big website in English, which is acm.nl. That's also where you will find the guidelines. But I maybe assume that you will also put a link into the description of your audio. Me personally, I am quite active on LinkedIn, trying to post at least all the decisions and some of the really interesting debates that we currently uh, see taking place place around this topic so if you go to Dries Kuipers which you will also probably need to see written down but if you look for me on uh, on LinkedIn you will definitely find me and see my regular posting well for now I'll thank Dries for coming on the show thank you Dries yeah thank you Mikhail uh, so much for this opportunity and uh, I hope your listeners uh, will really benefit from what we've discussed I'm sure they will and this is the end of this episode The link to the guidelines can be found in the show notes or on our website ethicsandmarketing.org. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now, and until next time, bye!